This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I can only assume that you are following, you have been following the comings and goings of the stock market over the past couple days. It would be high entertainment if it wasn't at people's money that was at play here. This is real money. These are real stocks. These are real investments. And so while it is fascinating to watch, it's a little nerve-wracking too. There's some fingernail biting going on. Yesterday, I think the, the market dropped 1,600 points before rebounding, but anyway, lost like 1,100 points over the course of the day. Today, up 500 and almost 70 points again, all over the map. So who better to go to to try and figure out and to explain what is actually happening with this than our go-to guy for economics, a man who explains everything in ways actual humans can understand. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Sir, thanks for doing this today. Not those artificial humans, but the actual humans. Well, I like talking to them. I, I say art, actual humans as opposed to, let's say, PhD students in university <laughs> who are supposed to understand this stuff. Uh, Marvin, I could ask you in many different ways to start into this and to try and come up with the most creative questions. Just take it. What is going on? <laughs> well, let's start with this. Stock market data that you see doesn't reflect the value of companies today, but the value of companies in the future. So nothing's fundamentally changed with any of the companies that trade on the stock exchange. This is quite different than 2007 when we had all those massive things going on there because there was a real problem in the mortgage industry that shook up some financial institutions and actually threatened the world's banking system. None of that is going on this time. So here's what happened. There are two groups of traders I like to talk about, bulls and bears. Bears see the world as a glass half empty and bulls see it as a glass half full. The American stock market had been on a real tear over the last 18 months, had gained something like 7,000, 8,000 points, and the bears started to growl. They said, oh, you know, this won't continue. There's going to have to be a problem out there somewhere. And they started looking for it, and they found it Friday morning. Friday morning, there was a report from the American statistics people on jobs in the month of January. This report is issued every month at the start. Jobs, 200,000 jobs created in the United States. We thought there might be 180,000. Good news, little story. And then just as a footnote, and it truly is just a footnote to the story, they said, by the way, wages in the last year, compared to January of 2017, up almost 3%. That wasn't what we were expecting. We were expecting a number more like 2%, and the bears grabbed onto this. They said, oh, my gosh, if wages are going up, then that means inflation is going to go up. It's going to cross 2%. You know what that means? The Federal Reserve is going to have to increase interest rates more than we thought they were this year, and thus it began. Something as simple as this number and this idea that there'd be four increases in 2018 as opposed to three, taking the interest rates up a full one percentage point, caused people to then revalue. They started by revaluing bonds. Bonds are things that I can invest in and give me a nice guaranteed return. Well, if, they're, if the, stock, if the uh, Federal Reserve is increasing interest rates, those are going to get a better return. Then what do we worry about? Stocks. And so stocks were in for a correction. Friday, we saw the stock market fall 666 points. I thought maybe over the weekend cooler heads would prevail and Monday would debut. We wouldn't have much, and in a way, that's what happened on Monday morning. Stock market barely moved. Oh, it dropped 300 points, but then it gained 300 points. It was only in the afternoon, starting at about 2 o'clock, that it just fell off a cliff and, as you correctly said, lost at almost 1,600 points before rebounding to a an 1,100-point decline. So this morning I'm doing an interview, and they said, what's going to happen today? And I said, <laughs> all bets are off. 
these bears are out feeding, will the bulls come into the market? And sure enough, in the course of just one day, this is a trading day of no more than uh, six hours, we've seen three declines and three rallies. The last rally that you also correctly said took us up nearly 570 points only began at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. At that point, we were back to where we started, and now we've ended up 570 points. Volatility is the word over these last three days, and that also means I can't tell you at all what's going to happen tomorrow. The stunning part of all this to me, and what I've taken, well, there were many things I've taken out of what you just said, is the entire negative fall-off of the stock market was prompted by good news. Yes. That, which which seems so antithetical to logic to say, hey, things are looking really good in the economy, so let's have some really bad news then to come out of this. That that For most people, that becomes a hard thing to wrap your head around. And I have to tell you, these last three days, Friday, Monday, and Tuesday, on the American stock market has nothing to do with logic. This all has to do with fear. <laughs> it's emotion that's driving this. Fear that the bad, excuse me, that the good news can't continue. Something bad's got to happen to us, and they were looking for us, like Turkey Lurkey and Henny Penny. You know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. They found it in that, and and even when when they, you know, we saw a bit of a rally, it couldn't be sustained. Those people kept running back in, saying, "Oh no, 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 there's something bad here." And to me, it's absolutely amazing, and it's no wonder so many people don't want to get involved in the stock market when you see a few days of absolute illogic like we've seen just recently. I'm just amazed, though, that I can't believe there are that many. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that half the population who are investing in the stock market are those naysayers and the people looking for every little negative, but it seems odd to me that the people who would do that would have enough sway to cause, not a crash, it's not a crash, but a, a, a serious... Dip. What, what, what's the proper word for it? I don't know well, what the not proper even a word. Correction yet. For a correction to happen, you have to have a ten percent move. Yesterday, we only saw about a four and a half percent move. So, what I'm also going to share with you is these uh, uh, illogic or these emotions get magnified today thanks to computers. So uh, today, there are too many stocks for individual people to keep track of. So they have these big fancy algorithms on computers. And these algorithms are absolutely brilliant. State-of-the-art, they're wonderful things, but there's one little caveat. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Marvin, just before we went to break, you were talking about the fact that this is not just the emotions and the intellect of the people who are on the stock exchange floors, the ones making the decisions. There are computers with algorithms. CNN has a fantastic story about this. You can find it on their website. There are now computer programs that are also playing a huge part in this rising and falling. Right. And so these these algorithms, again, because there's just so many stocks and it's too hard for any one human to keep track on all these things, you write these wonderful programs. The problem with them is they work well when the volatility is relatively low. So if you have a day where the stock market goes up 200 points, down 200 points, they work just brilliantly. But when you start seeing these wild swings, 400, 500, 600 points, the computer tends to very logically, but incorrectly, overreact. And so it actually magnifies the problem. It sells even more. So now a 400-point drop becomes an 800-point drop, becomes a 1,000-point drop. And this is when the humans have to intervene. So you can actually have a morning where you lose 600 points on the stock market, then an afternoon where it all comes back, because in essence the humans have intervened and say, no, no, don't sell that, and buy that back. No, we don't want that to go. There are good fundamentals there. 
and they overrule. Now, you might say, because of this, why do we use the programs? Well, in a typical trading year of, let's say, 250 days, there's only a handful of these kinds of days, six, seven, maybe ten. So the algorithms work very well, you know, 95% of the time. But on days like we're having today, I'd actually turn off the computers for a while, let the humans deal with it because it's just too, too chaotic for these programs to work well. But I suppose that made it somewhat predictable. First of all, because it seems that it always happens or almost always happens that when there's a big sell-off, a buy-off, buy-up results right after because people can now get a deal. But also if the algorithms have caused this, and as you say, the people then begin to get involved again, you would say, yeah, there's some things to be bought there that we could actually probably get and it's worth our while to do that right now. Well, right. So Friday night, I do an interview, uh, as we as we do in this business, and I said, yeah, 666-point drop. Look, Monday, I think the market will have rethought it, and you'll see the market go up a couple hundred points. And, of course, what happened Monday? It went down 1,200 <laughs> points. It's not always clear that the very next day there's going to be buying, but we certainly saw a number of stocks down roughly 5% at the end of yesterday's trading. If you had thought you wanted to buy Apple, if you had thought you wanted to buy Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, they're having a 5% off sale. Of course, the flip side of this coin, if you wait another day, maybe they'll take another 5% off. Who knows for certain? And that's why Wall Street is still a bit of a random number generator here. And I'm saying tomorrow, I have no idea what we're going to see. It could go up again. Again, people thinking they'd oversold the market. On the other hand, the bears could rush back in and say, look, here's more bad news and we're going the other direction. We're just, we're just in a little period where I can't predict a thing. Now, while the market is up considerably from a year ago, 6,000 points, something like that, 5,000 points, where I mean, it's way up. There are still, I am sure, people, especially those who are getting older, who are thinking that they need their investments to be comfortable and healthy right now, I am sure, who are very nervous when they see these kind of things happen, who can't play the long game. What do you say to those people when this thing is going on and they are seeing their investments go way up and then way down and way up and way down? Well, the key is that the reason why it's going up and down has very little to do with the investment itself. If I go back to 2007 where we saw a big a uh, big run, if you will, on financial institutions and great instability in the mortgage market, we were quite concerned that some banks weren't even going to survive, and banks we think of as blue-chip stocks. This time around, there's been nothing fundamentally different in any company out there. So whether it's a steel-making company or a bank or a motion picture company or whatever it is, they've actually been reporting very healthy earnings. In fact, on average, earnings increase compared to last year up over 10%. So that's not what's driving this. It is simply sentiment in the market. And in this situation, I would tell you, I understand why you are worried about the sleeping value of your investment, but nothing fundamentally is going on that should cause a problem. This is just something the market has to work out itself. And maybe, Scott, just another quick footnote. When we talk about the market, this has all been isolated, really, in the American market. Yes, the Canadian stock market yesterday went down 270 points. Today it went up 50 points. But it's nowhere near the magnitude. And, in fact, the only reason why we have any of this at all is because of our financial institutions, now as diverse as they are, are exposed to this volatility in the American market. It wasn't the oil companies causing it on the Toronto Stock Exchange. It was actually the banks where people were worried, well, is there contagion that will come north of the border? But really, we're just stand by, stand by and watching all of the, the fun going on in New York City. Should I be surprised by that? We've got to wrap it up. But should I be surprised by that then? Because we are so connected with our economies, Canada and the U.S. When it happens in the U.S., I think a lot of people just figure that ours is going to be dragged into this. 
Yeah, and so just to wrap this up, we have not seen the kind of growth in the Canadian stock market that they saw in the American stock market. It, again, it's almost like we were standing on the sidelines watching it. So bears in Canada weren't growling. They weren't expecting any kind of a major correction because there was no need for one. In the United States, it's just the opposite. Under the Donald Trump year, year and a half that we've had, it has gone on such a tear. It really needed to calm down for a while. And this is certainly, while it's chaotic, probably will slow the market a little bit for the next few months. Was that you complimenting Donald Trump? And no, the Donald Trump year is nothing Donald Trump did. It just is coincident with his year. <laughs> Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for taking it today. Anytime. Uh, there you go. So, A, there's your explanation. B, don't ask he or I what's going to happen tomorrow. It will be a whole new exciting story tomorrow on the stock market. I'm sure everybody will be watching just to see what that may be. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Have you ever heard of someone by the name of Florence Lawrence? I mean, some people are going to think it's a joke of a name because it rhymes. No, Florence Lawrence. Hands up if you, or honk your horn or do something if you've ever heard of Florence Lawrence. Now, you probably haven't. Most people I talk to have not really heard her. If they have, they don't really know why. You should, though. And we're going to explain in just one second why you should know about Florence Lawrence and why her name is back in the conversation today. Because there is a move afoot led by a local guy who I'm going to bring on in just a second. There is a move afoot to have her finally, after way, way, way too long, honored in her hometown here in Hamilton. Cadillac Bill is a guy that many of you will know from his show on Cable 14, one of the most unusual but funny shows that you will see. Uh, He is a Hamiltonian, and he is the man, I don't know if he's leading the drive to recognize Florence Lawrence, but he's certainly at the forefront of this. He joins me now. Bill, thanks for doing this today. Hey, Scott. Good to talk to you again. Thrilled to have you back. So, as I said off the top, I think most people, even if they've heard of Florence Lawrence, don't really know anything about her. So take a minute or two here and tell us the story of who this woman is or was. Well, it it is one of the most interesting things. Uh, Florence Lawrence is the very first Hollywood movie star. She, first of all, I must say she was born and raised in Hamilton, born in 1886 and uh, born as Florence Bridgewood, grew up on Jackson Street. And she, 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 she moved away. She moved, uh, I think, it was to New York and started work, uh, making films in uh, 1906 for Thomas Edison. And then uh, for about three years after that, she moved to Hollywood and became basically the very first Hollywood movie star. And the reason I'm saying she's the first movie star is because she was the first person, actor or actress, to have her name at the beginning of the film in big, in big writing, Florence Lawrence. Because before that, they never even credited the actors. And people would go to movies because they knew Florence Lawrence was in these movies. And she was being on the, on the cover of all these magazines in 1912 and... She was just a huge star in Hollywood, and she came from Hamilton. She was, and when you say she was the first star, prior to that even, she she was a star even before anyone knew who she was, because there were movies made when they wouldn't do that, and so she was this woman that people recognized or knew to be the person on the screen, but they had no idea what her name was. Correct. She was called the Biograph Girl, 
because uh, that was the studio she was making movies for in Hollywood, Biograph Films. Um, so yeah, everyone knew her. Oh, she's she's the Biograph girl. But uh, they soon found out her name, and they wanted her name in all the posters. You know, the the audience loved her. Now, was she, Bill, I mean, while she got to be famous and while people knew her name, and by the way, how big a deal was she at the height of her fame? Was she huge or was she just... Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, she made 250 films. She also starred in the very first comedy series. Uh, She was Mrs. Jones in a comedy series. And I don't think anyone's ever heard of this series. Maybe if somebody's in their 80s, they may have heard of her. But... Uh, literally, she was an enormous, enormous star. And if you get any book about the uh, history of Hollywood, Florence Lawrence will be the first chapter, basically. And she was later, as I understand it, uh, she was essentially at some point replaced, or I don't know if replaced is the right word, by Mary Pickford. And everyone knows who Mary Pickford is. Correct. Uh, But this was the precursor to that. So this was at the very, very beginning of motion pictures in the theaters. She was before Mary Pickford, absolutely, and she was uh, she was doing very well. But I think she wanted to make a bit more money, and the studio basically said, "Well, forget it. No, off you go. We'll find someone else." And interestingly enough, Mary Pickford is from Toronto, so the two <laughs> the two Hollywood actresses who started the whole silent movie thing going were from about thirty miles from each other. Now, Toronto and Hamilton. The, part of the story, now she also, I, I, I don't want to get totally off track here, she has some interesting little side notes that she is credited, whether it's true or not, she is credited with inventing the precursor to the turn signal for cars. She absolutely did. Which is weird. In, in, in 1912, she, well, well, first of all, she loved cars. She was one of the very few people, you know, in 1912 to own a car, a uh, man or woman, and she, um, the cars didn't have turn signals, and she designed and made and installed, I mean, she may have gotten a, a little bit of help, but a, a little arms that flip up at the back bumper with a little arrow left or right, and, and you operate from a switch on uh, inside the car, and it was, lit, it was the, considered the very first turn signal, but she never patented it. And pre- prior to that, I understand her mother had invented the windshield wiper. Yes, her mother. It's a strange family. The windshield wiper and never patented. Which is a mistake. Which is a mistake. And actually, and we got to take a break in just a second. But those, so she's got she's got this movie career going. She's got this invention thing going on that is just a very strange thing for a movie star to have that going on as well. She, yep. though, uh, this did not turn out to be all that happy a story. There were things that came along, and things took a, what I would describe as a pretty sour turn for her life in the later years of her career. Would that be a fair statement? Yes, and I think uh, we, uh, can we tell them, you, you, your listeners, exactly what happened after the break? Because it, it, it is quite a... It's, it's a tragic ending. Well, let's really do that. Is. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to explain what happened to Florence Lawrence and why it's time to honor her here in her hometown. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Talking with Cadillac Bill, well-known local entertainer, 
about Florence Lawrence, a woman who started her life here in Hamilton, grew up in Hamilton, went down to the States, became the first movie star, literally the first movie star way, way, way back at the start of movies, became enormous. But then, as we said just before the break, this did not end particularly well. Uh, Bill, as I understand it, she was doing a film at some point and during a stunt or something, suffered an injury that really began a bit of a downward spiral for her. Correct. It was actually uh, it was a fire. She uh, There was a fire on the set. She actually saved one of the, uh, I'm not sure if it was an actor or an actress, but she rescued the the, uh, the colleague. And um, she, she not only was burned, but she fell as well. And she ended up in hospital and was paralyzed for six months. And she never got compensated. The studio at the time, uh, well, the studio became Universal Studios uh, soon after. But Universal Studios, she was always trying to get uh, compensation. They never compensated her. So she can't work. She doesn't get compensation. I understand that a number of her investments, the money that she had made, was lost on poor investments. She had a couple or more than two to maybe three marriages that, as I read, Bill, all of them were abusive marriages. She was beaten up by her husband quite regularly that I read. Yeah, yeah. And now she tries to come back into the industry several years later, and maybe the biggest blow to anybody who's ever been a star, nobody knows who she is anymore. You're correct, yeah. By by this point, we're in the 1920s and 30s, and they've, you know, the silent movie stars were over. And she actually tried to start up, a, well, she did start up a, a cosmetic company um, that, that unfortunately failed, and but it was a competitor to Max Factor and uh, Avon's. So Florence Lawrence lines of cosmetics. I mean, it was looking promising, but it, you know, unfortunately that failed. So basically, yeah, her life after those 250 movies she made pretty much fizzled out, and she became, you know. Penniless, really. Penniless and despondent and, well, you you tell and, what happened at the and, end of her and life. physically, you still, you know, never, of course, got over the, you know, the, the, the accident. She also had a, a rare bone disease her entire life that caused a great deal of pain. Um, but she managed, she made it through all of that. She, she you know, she, 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 she was a trooper. She... Despite her, her her bone disease and the injuries and the fire and and her failed movie career, she kept you know trying. But uh, unfortunately, the sad ending was that in 1938 she committed suicide in Hollywood by eating ant paste. Ant paste has arsenic in it. Yes. Well. Yeah, and buried in an unmarked grave for many years. It finally got some actor, some anonymous actor, finally paid for a headstone. Roddy McDowell. Oh, was the, it? The, the 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 story there was uh, she, her, she was buried in the back lot of uh, of Paramount Pictures. Is basically a little burial area where they just sort of pretty much just throw in an actor with no name and no money, and have no markings on their graves. And Roddy McDowell, in 1991, found out, because, you know, most people who know about the history of Hollywood all know about Florence Lawrence. He found out that there she was, the first movie actress, was buried in an unmarked grave 
buy an old gas where they used to fuel up the the, 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 the movie cars. So he paid to have a little, you know, a little modest headstone for us. Now you want to do something similar here. Now, obviously not a headstone, but you are leading the charge to get Hamilton to 100 years, to 150 years almost after she was a star to do something to honor her here. Yeah. What, what would you like to see happen? Well, well f- first of all, the reason I'm coming on your show is because I want Hamiltonians to know about Florence Lawrence. I, you know, most people here don't know about her. And so that's why I wanted to let people know about her. But I also wanted to let city councillors and, you know, the city, the politicians and whatnot know about her. And maybe we can put up a little plaque for her or a statue or just something. Just get the word out. Just just for our councillors to, you know, mention her in brochures or whatever. Just because Florence Lawrence is one of uh, Hamilton's greatest uh, parts of our history. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. This, and it's a story that is, as I say, while you mentioned that it ends very sadly, there's a lot of stories that don't end as well as we would like, but sure, that doesn't yeah. take away from the fact that their life and what they accomplished and what they did was remarkable. And and here's the thing about it. People knew that she was from Hamilton. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It wasn't like she disappeared from here and everyone said, where was Florence Lawrence from? And everyone said, well, I don't know. She was from New York, whatever. She was. It was very clear. She was from Hamilton. She brought lots of acclaim for this city many, many years ago. Really? Well, that, I'm glad. I, that, that's good to hear. And I don't know how many of your listeners have even heard of Florence Lawrence, probably hardly anyone. Um, but it would be nice for uh, uh, city councillors to... You know, talk about this and get a little plaque happening. Absolutely, and they're doing more of that, and I give them credit because it's taken some time, but they are honoring athletes and other people who are within the city, from the city, who have done great things. This seems like one that would fit exactly, Bill, with uh, with that kind of move. And I applaud you for this, and I hope that they're listening, and I hope that people will find this on the podcast or find this on Twitter, this interview, and send this off to city councillors and at least let them know so that Bill's move and Bill's movement and Bill's work to get this done will get some traction. Listen, I really, um, I got to run, but I really appreciate the time and the explanation today. Bill, thanks for doing this. Okay, thanks, Scott. Good talking to you. Again, this is going to be up on Twitter. We're going to have this up in a couple hours when the show is over. Find your counselor's Twitter handle, find their email, whatever it is. Send this interview to them and say, listen, time to start talking about Florence Lawrence. A plaque is not an exceptional thing to ask the city of Hamilton to do for someone like this, even though most people don't know about her. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. One small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. One giant leap for mankind. Just want to read you a few quotes, if I can, for the next few minutes. Start with this one. I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe the unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. Martin Luther King Jr. Nonviolence is the greatest force at the disposal of mankind. It is mightier than the mightiest weapon of destruction devised by the ingenuity of man. Mahatma Gandhi. Great thoughts speak only to the thoughtful mind, but great actions speak to all mankind. Theodore Roosevelt. 
mankind must put an end to war before war puts an end to mankind. Nationalism, that was John F. Kennedy, by the way. Nationalism is an infantile disease. It is the measles of mankind, Albert Einstein. Humor is mankind's greatest blessing, Mark Twain. My first wish is to see this plague of mankind, war, banished from the earth, George Washington. Democracy, pure democracy, has at least its foundation in the generous theory of human rights. It is founded on the natural equality of mankind. It is the cornerstone of the Christian religion. It is the first element of all lawful government upon earth, John Quincy Adams. The Republican is the only form of government which is not eternally at open or secret war with the rights of mankind, Thomas Jefferson. I call on the scientific community in our country, those who gave us nuclear weapons, to turn their great talents now to the cause of mankind and world peace, to give us the means of rendering these nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete, Ronald Reagan. It all happened so fast. The ghetto, the deportation, the sealed cattle car, the fiery altar upon which the history of our people and the future of mankind were meant to be sacrificed. Ellie Weasel. What important is man? Should, what's important is man should live in righteousness, in natural love for mankind. Bob Marley. I hold that while man exists, it's his duty to improve not only his own condition, but to assist in ameliorating mankind. Abraham Lincoln. It's lamentable that to be a good patriot, one must become the enemy of the rest of mankind. Voltaire. Music is the one incorporeal entrance into the higher world of knowledge which, inco- which comprehends mankind, but which mankind cannot comprehend. Ludwig von Beethoven. Imagination has brought mankind through the dark ages to his present state of civilization. L. Frank Baum. The, the reproduction of mankind is a great marvel and mystery. Had God consulted me in the matter, I should have advised him to continue the generation of the species by fashioning them out of clay. Martin Luther. I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. Charles M. Schultz. We believe, with all the strength of our spirit, that mankind has a supreme primary and irreplaceable need which can be satisfied only through Jesus Christ, Pope John Paul VI. The question of armaments, whether on land or sea, is the most immediately and intensely practical question connected with the future fortunes of nations and of mankind, Woodrow Wilson. I have offended God and mankind because my work didn't reach the quality it should have, Leonardo da Vinci. Those 62 million girls who are not being educated around the world impact my life in Washington, D.C. in the United States of America because if we aren't empowering and providing the skills and the resources to half our population, then we're not realizing our full potential as a society, as mankind. Michelle Obama. What, man? Defy the devil? Consider he's an enemy to mankind. William Shakespeare. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Neil Armstrong. We like to say people kind, not mankind. Justin Trudeau. This week, our Prime Minister became a laughingstock with this idiotic... Look, we just listed... How many? 20? 25 of the most brilliant people ever to walk the face of the earth. Men, women, old, young, new, ancient. All who were fine, who understood what mankind meant. I just, I I can't believe 
the arrogance. I honestly can't. Of all the things. And the question where Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau, brought this up was a question about charity and about helping mankind. And what he took out of that question at a town hall meeting was people kind, not mankind. Not about solving the charity problem, not about helping more people. We have to say people kind, not mankind. I'm sorry. There are a lot of things that we can snicker and laugh. This is embarrassing. This is embarrassing. This is, this is absolutely embarrassing that our prime minister does this kind of stuff. Anyway, as someone pointed out today, if you're around Prime Minister Trudeau for the next little while, if you're speaking Mandarin, you're not speaking Mandarin, you're speaking Peopleerin. And if you go to, down to some place and you see a manatee, uh-uh, it's not a manatee, it's a person, a peopleatin. And worst of all, in this country, when he travels to Winnipeg for a speech sometime, it's not Manitoba. The province is going to be changed to Peopleatoba. Sometimes you just have to wonder what is going on in that head of his. There's a lot of good hair covering it. I don't know there's a lot of good stuff going on under that hair. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. If you hadn't been paying attention lately, just in case you weren't, The Hamilton Bulldogs are having a pretty outstanding season down at First Ontario Centre. They are currently first in the Eastern Conference. They're 11 points up on their closest rival in that conference. They are looking like they are almost certainly going to have home ice advantage throughout the playoffs as long as they can go. And plus, they have just made a bunch of trades to load up for that playoff run. So who better to bring on here to talk about this than the president and general manager of that team, Steve Steo. Steve, thanks for doing this tonight. Anytime, Scott. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. Are you doing fe- well, thanks. Well, are you feeling, I was going to ask you, are you feeling with this team now good, or are you feeling nervous about it? Oh, I feel good. I mean, I don't think there's anything to be nervous about, really. I mean, uh, you know, from my perspective, we've, uh, um, you know, we, we've done all of our, our work and due diligence, uh, you know, uh, up to the trade deadline and, uh, you know, made our assessments and targeted some players and like we've done very well by uh, acquiring the players we have not just by the type of players they are but certainly by the, the type of people they are as well uh, strong character people and uh, we feel good about it we, we feel the excitement that the city is feeling we feel the excitement that the fans are feeling and certainly our players feel it as well when, and when I say nervous I, I I know you feel good about your team I wonder as a general manager though I always wonder this when a general manager makes a bunch of moves and essentially goes all in and says you know what we've got a team that I feel we can add some pieces to here and give up a little bit of our future I always wonder if after you do that or even before you pull the trigger if there are some nerves there uh, I w- the nerves were sort of making that decision, hey, Scott. Like as we worked towards it, was uh, <clears throat> the real telling time and, and making that assessment. But uh, I feel strongly about this group. I I, I had for some time. I think the early in the season where um, you know we made the acquisitions of uh, Ryan Moore and Nicholas Camano. I think that was sort of the defining moment for us that we were going to, going to move forward with this group. But they showed me great signs of it. Um, as far as being nervous. I think it's I think it's more of an opportunity that we couldn't pass up on. Uh, you know, with our players, the way that they're performing, with uh, uh, with with the age of our group, when we start to look at, um, for me, uh, coming in because there's part of that bid process where we have to really assess our team and dig deep deep into it. 
um, as I went through all those uh, sort of checkpoints, you realize that this was an opportunity that um, we we had to kind of in and we had to give this opportunity. So the assessment of the team at that point, I think, was uh, the right decision, but we felt very comfortable to to add to this group. This was, though, this was the... Sorry, Steve, we're, we're having a real bad connection with you here, so we're going to keep trying, and then we may have to try back again. But um, this was your first time being in that position, though, where you've had a team that you felt could make a run now, and so it was time to, to make some of these moves. Are you someone who agonizes over decisions like this, or do they come reasonably quickly and reasonably easily to you? Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty methodical in it. Uh, I take my time with these things, and... Uh, you know, Steve, we're yeah. going to just try you right back because we've got a terrible connection. We just keep breaking up with you. So Ben's just going to give you a try okay. back and see if we can get a better line here because we're, uh, we're not hearing much of what you're saying, and I want to. Uh, okay. Ben, give him a Thanks. shout right back if you can. Um, yeah, so where they stand right now, just for those who have not been paying as close attention, and honestly, not everybody has. Well, I understand that. I think everyone understands that. This is a team that came here three years ago, not a great team, not a great team, came from Belleville, things were not looking hunky-dory. Three years later, as I say, they are in first place. Now, they have challenges. There are other teams in the league. They're not running away with things. This is not a team that is going to beat everybody handily, but this is a very good team right now. Steve, let me go back. Uh, we've got Steve Steos back on the line now. Let me try that question again. You were talking about how you are rather methodical when it comes to making these kind of decisions on whether to make trades. I'll let you pick it up from there. Yeah, I hope the connection is better now. It is now. Um, yeah, well, you know, yeah, we go through due process and we uh, uh, make those ass- assessments. I don't know where, where I, I lost yet, but we, we certainly at, at a certain point looked at this group and, and uh, it was – Basically, the decision was made for us by the way these players have performed and the way they've uh, handled themselves. Um, but no, we're methodical about it. Not just on once. Once I got to the idea that uh, or the the confirmation that we needed to add to this group, but then certainly we did a lot of due diligence on targeted players. And we weren't just looking at bringing high end players because they had good point totals, but we certainly looked at chemistry. We looked at character. Uh, we looked at the right fit. Um, you know, on the back end with Riley Stillman being a partner for possibly Justin Lemke, uh, Nicholas Madden being a right shot defenseman, all of these factors. And that's the, that's the part where I'm talking about being methodical, that we weren't just picking players that were available. We were looking at the players that were available and certainly putting a target on, on the ones that we thought would fit, to, fit our group. And is there a point in your position when you make a trade or two, you talked about the trade you made reasonably early this year, that you get to a point, uh, uh, we'll call it a point of no return, when you realize, you know what, we've come this far, we, there's really no point in getting cold feet now, we're all in, so we're going to go all in? Yeah, the, the the defining moment was certainly being able to pull off that, that early deal with Flint and bringing in uh, uh, Ryan Moore and Nicholas Camano. I, I, I felt that once we were able to accomplish that, um, it was time for us to, to continue to add to this group. And and it, it, I owed it to the group. I owed it to this group of players. Uh, I want this to be a special time for them. I want there to be an opportunity. There's no guarantees that we come out with the uh, with the end result, which we're, we're, we're targeting for is winning a championship for this city. Um, and our players know that. Our players know that we, we've, we've refocused on the process. 
of getting there. We don't want them to get too tied up in the end result. It's, I want it to be a special time for these players and a special time for our coaches and a special time for our city. One of the things about it, though, that makes it so interesting is these are kids, and we forget that sometimes. These are teenagers that are being traded. You were traded once in the OHL, right? You went to Sudbury from uh, from Niagara Falls. So Correct. I, I'm wondering, do, can you remember what that was like to be traded as a junior? Was it different from being moving as a pro? Oh, for sure. I mean, that, that to, I think I've mentioned it to you before, Scott, but to me, uh, the most difficult part of my job you know, you you sit there and you you brainstorm and you pull off all these ideas and you get yourself ready and you target players and you go through your process of managing the team. Um, at the end of the day, there's you're trading young young men, uh, 16 and 17 year old players, which um, is very difficult. So once the deal is sort of done and you have to go and meet with the player and the family, um, that's not much fun and that's difficult. And for me, you know, I was. Uh, you know, I was 19 years old when I got traded in the Ontario Hockey League, so it might have been a little bit better or a little bit easier, but certainly you're leaving a, a bill at home and a family and a community. It's the first place that you've lived at uh, outside of your home that you grew up in. So, I mean, that, that that's no fun. I mean, that's, that's really a difficult thing. You were on when you played in Niagara Falls. You were on some pretty good teams, though. You had a couple of really good years with some, uh, with some strong teams. Are there comparisons with the team you've built here now? Oh, I think that's gone way too far back. Uh, certainly, I can give you some more more recent comparisons. I mean, we uh, when we went through the Memorial Cup bit, I, I, I really took dug deep in the last ten uh, OHL championship teams and the makeup of those teams. And, you know, all of them have some different uh, components to it, but uh, certainly the majority of them had uh, three lines that were all able to contribute offensively, and that sort of was the makeup of. Um, you know the blueprint of what we had put together, and and on the back end to make sure that we had uh, a certain components of our defense, and you know the addition of of, of Stillman as a 98 and Matten as a 98, both big bodies that are uh, you know both NHL drafted. Um, a lot of a lot of the homework was done uh, beforehand, and then we go and target the players that we see fit. But uh, we feel like our greatest strength is depth, and we tell our players every day that everybody's important. We have uh, you know we have players like Robert Thomas and Matthew Strong that can go down the list of high-end guys. Then you have a player like Isaac Nurse uh, who continues to impress and is as important as anybody on our team. And uh, and that, I really believe, is the strength of our group, is our depth. And yet, and it's so funny because we just talked about you when you were talking about trading guys, that they are young, young men. Ultimately, this comes down to the fact that your work is in the hands of a bunch of young men, and I know you were a mature young man because you were playing in the OHL and you had to be mature, but I also know what I, I was like when I was 17 or 18 or 19, and maybe a little bit of, there's unpredictability there still. It's not quite like the NHL with the guys that this is all riding on. Yeah, and, and there's, you know, I mean, and not just that, in the NHL, it's, you still have some question marks as you go into it, We and we know that, and that's, you know that's really the fun of junior hockey, and I think if you ask our fans, that's that's the great thing about it because there are mistakes and kids still fall, or still fall down and turn pucks over, and there's breakaways uh, that you don't see as much of at the National Hockey League level. But certainly, there's there's some things that we can't predict. We all we do our projections on on where we're at. We certainly feel like we have a very good uh, opportunity here moving forward with our group. But um, there's no guarantees. But at the end of the day, I think from my perspective is we've given we've given this group the opportunity uh, to go out and, and do some uh, really great things. You one of the interesting things about the Ontario Hockey League is because of 
conferences and because of partly geography, you don't always get to see every team as much as you get to see others. And it's a weird situation with the schedule this year that the two best teams in the league are you right now and Sault Ste. Marie, and you haven't played them yet. You've got two games back-to-back coming up with them. I wonder how curious you are to get those games going so you could actually see how you match up with the team that to this point has really been the, the class of the league. Well, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think our players are excited. I think our coaches are excited. You always want to match up against the best, but certainly we have a lot of work to do before we have any opportunity to meet the Sioux in, in, in a final, uh, if you're talking about the playoffs. But certainly, uh, and they have work to do on their side as well. I mean, it's not, uh, but it, it will be fun. Certainly, I mean, for our fans to come in and see Sioux St. Marie plays a certain style of game, which is really dynamic and uh, puck possession type of game. And, uh, uh, very fun team to watch. Um, we'll be challenged for sure. But it's a real, it's a, it's a benchmark game for you guys too. Two of them actually back to back. But these are this probably better than any other game this year is going to show you where you guys stand. Yeah, for sure. And we going into Kitchener the other night was a great test for us as well. Uh, you know, we were shorthanded with a suspension and two injuries to top players. But uh, um, you know, yeah, th- th- this is certainly a lot of fun. Our, our game against Kingston was. Uh, probably the best game I've seen in the Ontario Hockey League in those regular season game and uh, matched any playoff game that I've seen up until this point. So I think our players get up for it. I think the opposing team gets up for it. Uh, certainly it's going to be a, a lot of fun to, to see where we match up against Sue. Steve, we just have a couple minutes left. And from a personal note, uh, when you took over as general manager of this team, you guys were right near the bottom. I think you had the third overall draft pick that year when you, your first pick. The teams that were around you at that time that were all struggling and all wanted to get better are with varying degrees. They have improved to some degree, some of them, but you are the only one that has shot up and is now, as I say, first in your conference. There has to be a point of pride personally for you when you look around and see where you started and who you were competing with at that level that you've been able to do this. Uh, To be quite honest, Scott, I haven't really looked at it that way. Uh, We, we continue to try and stay disciplined to what we do. Um, I, I didn't know that. I mean, now that you brought it up, maybe I'll take a look. But um, we, we really put a plan in place. Um, you know, we we uh, hold each other accountable to certain things, and that's from scouting to coaching to, uh, you know, our, our off-ice fitness, all that sort of stuff. And you hope that that process and that plan, if you, you know, you hold yourself accountable to doing that, those that good things will happen. Certainly, I'm, I'm proud, but I, I'm I'm proud of the job that we've done. But when I say we've done, it's not about me. It's I have an incredible staff around me. I think the coaches have done a tremendous job. But certainly, from coming from ninth um, ninth place in that first year, where that Belleville team had come over and, and making some of the adjustments and changes we've made and implementing some certain things that we we've done, um, it's certainly a point of pride. We went from ninth place to fifth place. Uh, we're first in the East as we stand right now, and uh, um, there's a lot of people that des- deserve credit for that. But uh, I'm I'm proud that I think the city, I think our fans deserve to have a, a, a fun team and a great product on the ice. And uh, again, we feel the buzz that's going on, and our fans are extremely excited, and they deserve it. Yeah, and I guess the reason I asked that question as well is because it, it to me it shows that it's not all that easy to do. It may look easy because you guys have done it in mm-hmm. two and a half or three years. But again, those teams that were down at the bottom with you then, they are still working to get there. It's, it, it, it doesn't seem as easy as maybe it's looked here. Uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, there's, <laughs> we put a lot of work into it. Um, again, 
we, 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 we try and bring good people on board and we empower them. And that's from front office to everybody's, everybody's invested. And that's what I love about it. And, uh, there's a sense of pride with our, um, with our team, uh, right from the, the top to the bottom and uh it, it's a proud moment it's very i'm really excited about it i try not to say too much because it sounds like we're, we're boasting about where we are we just continue to put our head down and go to work that's what our team does that's what our coaches do that's what i do every day hopefully i'm leading uh, by example and setting a good example for everybody but uh, uh we stay humble we stay hungry we stay uh, working every day Steve Steos, president and general manager of the first place Hamilton Bulldogs, which is way better than when he took over and he was president and general manager of the almost last place Hamilton Bulldogs. <laughs> it's got a way better ring to it, doesn't it? Uh, it certainly does. <laughs> Appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Hey, have a great night. Uh, I will point out, since Steve said that he was not paying attention to this, I will point out that when he took over, a couple years ago, three years ago, they were, Hamilton was at the bottom with Guelph, Flint, Saginaw, and Sudbury. Well, Sudbury and Flint are still at the bottom. They really haven't shown much improvement. Guelph and Saginaw have shown improvement, but are middle to bottom middle teams right now. Only the Bulldogs have been able to figure out how to get to the top of the pack. That's kudos to them. Look, it's, it's as I said at the end, way better to be in first place than to not be in first place. And that's where they are right now. If you are interested in this team, if you're not even really interested in this team, I would still say if you're going to think about maybe going to a game this year and you haven't been, look on the schedule for the Sault Ste. Marie game. They play a home and home. They play here and in Sault Ste. Marie. Sault Ste. Marie is the class of the league. If you want to see how the Hamilton Bulldogs really are, that is the game that you would want to take a look at. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.